లవింగ్ సాయిరామ్ అండ్ గ్రీటింగ్స్ ఫ్రమ్ ప్రశాంతి నిలయం ఐఎమ్ సారీ దట్ ఓయింగ్ టు అన్అవాయిడబుల్ సర్కంస్టాన్సెస్ దాజ్ అ స్మాల్ బ్రేక్ ఇన్ మై బ్రాడ్కాస్ట్ ఆఫ్ దిస్ సిరీస్ ఐ ఆఫర్ మై అపాలజీ అండ్ ప్లీజ్ అలౌ మీ టు రిజ్యూమ్ ఫ్రమ్ వేర్ ఐ లెఫ్ట్ ఆఫ్ ఇన్ వ్యూ ఆఫ్ ది బ్రేక్ perhaps a bit of recap would be in order in my last talk which was the seventh in the series on dharma vahini the most important point i made was with respect to the distinctive roles played by men and women in the larger scheme of sustaining dharma in creation a clarification relating to the gender issue became necessary for the following reason you see by itself the atma is far beyond creation and therefore in the face of it there is really no meaning in bringing the gender issue where the principle of atma dharma is concerned however as i explained earlier at the practical level there is the issue of how people in different circumstances actually observe atma dharma or put it into practice in daily life that is to say how for example there's a policeman a teacher a judge a soldier an administrator etc apply the principle of atma dharma in practice extending the idea a similar question arises in relation to men and women as well and that is how the so called gender issue comes up clearly there have to be and indeed there are distinct rules for men and for women i did not get sidetracked into those details instead i decided to offer comments on certain aspects that seldom receive attention i pointed out that while at the highest level that is to say far beyond creation there is only pure or absolute consciousness in creation or in the universe in which we all live divinity has two distinct aspects namely divine consciousness and divine energy which are symbolized respectively by Shiva and Parvati. That said, it is clear there is present in every individual, irrespective of gender, both the Shiva as well as the Parvati aspect. You may remember that I told you that the so-called joint representation is called Ardhanarishwara, half man, half woman. Nevertheless at the biological level we do have males and females men and women so we have this apparently strange phenomenon of distinct males and females at the biological level and yet at the spiritual level both men and women have the shiva as well as the parvati aspects in them i try to explain why this is so and how the coexistence of cosmic aspects operates in practice i also discussed the role of men and women in day to day life 
by drawing upon the mythological story of Shiva and Parvati. In particular, I pointed out that while in their teens, both boys and girls must focus entirely on spiritual elevation. This training and discipline was intended to help, at least in those times, both young men and women to practice dharma the way it ought to be after marriage. Once a young man gets married, he and his wife were expected to jointly foster dharma. All this took me then to the topic of Purusharthas and I ended the talk promising to discuss it in greater detail in my next talk. And that precisely is what I shall now proceed to do. I would like to begin this discussion on Pusharthas by first reminding you that in ancient Indian society, life was partitioned into four stages. I have already mentioned this earlier, but a repetition would perhaps help. As I mentioned before, the four stages were as follows. Stage 1. Brahmacharya the young man studies scriptures with the Guru, gets initiated into Gayatri and meditates intensely on Brahman or God. Stage 2. Grahastha The man, having completed his learning with the Guru, comes out of the Gurukulam, gets married and leads the life of a householder. Stage 3 or Vanaprastha The married couple, having reached old age, and the children having grown up and entered family life themselves. The married couple retire to the forest. What it really means is that they substantially decrease their attachments to things, both material as well as to the family, thus mentally preparing themselves to focus more and more on God, seeking to merge with Him when the time comes. After all this comes finally stage 4, when the man becomes a complete renunciate. This is technically described by saying that the man embraces sannyasa. As a sannyasi, the man leaves home and wandering in the world makes the entire world his home. In fact, the whole world becomes his family. He is supposed to have absolutely no attachment of any kind, including to his wife and his children. You will notice that these four stages of life are described in terms of what the man would do in various stages of life. This should not be seen as putting women down and giving them an inferior place. What these four stages mean for women have also been codified. However, since my knowledge of that is limited, I am leaving all those details to be described by women scholars who I hope would take up the issue later. If you see all this from the perspective of today, all this partitioning or structuring, whatever you call it, and the prescriptions meticulously laid down for each stage in life, it might seem odd, meaningless, and even wrong. I submit to you, however, that we should not rush to judge the lifestyle of people who lived four or five thousand years ago. More pertinent and important are the questions. What is the fundamental basis for structuring such a four-stage roadmap for life? Does that fundamental basis have any relevance still?
If so, how? The answers to these questions have been spelled out by Swami himself and that is precisely where the Purusharthas enter the picture. The word Purusharthas roughly means the legitimate objects of human endeavor. This, by the way, is the interpretation given by Swami himself in an amazing discourse given way back on 14 July 1966 while declaring open the Prashantinalayam branch of the State Bank of India. Imagine that. Purushatta is being discussed at a bank opening ceremony. Now scholars define Purusharthas as the attainment of the state of Brahman. Is that definition and the one I gave earlier based on Swami's statement, are these two contradictory? Not at all. And that is what I shall take a few minutes to explain at this stage. Swami has told us on innumerable occasions that God has blessed us with the human form for the special purpose of using it as best as we can to get back to God real quick. As he often tells his students, from God we have come and to God we must all return. The human body is given to ensure precisely that by engaging in right action. And Dharmavahini is nothing but a detailed elucidation of what exactly is meant by right action. The question now arises. It's all well to talk about right action, but in life, one is young to start with, one then enters adulthood, after which comes the middle age followed by old age. Clearly, actions would have to suit the age of the person. So how about a road map that one must follow in different stages of life? The Purusharthas answered precisely that question. The Purusharthas spell out a simple four-point formula made up of four key words. They are Dharma meaning righteousness, Artha meaning wealth, Kama meaning desires, and Moksha meaning liberation. What I have given are the literal meanings of the four words that make up the quartet known as Purusharthas. More significant is the sequence in which the four words appear. Let us start with the first and the last words. The first word is Dharma. And it has been given the first place to convey strongly that no matter what one does at any stage of life, it must always be based on Dharma, period. No ifs and buts and no exemptions under any circumstances. Similarly, the last word moksha implies that at every stage in life, one must never lose sight of the purpose of life, which is to march steadfastly towards God. In turn, this means that one must progressively become more and more detached to material things. What about the other two words tucked in between, namely artha and kama? Well, the ancient said that while one is leading the life of a householder, that is to say as a grahastha, one cannot avoid seeking wealth, nor be totally free from desires, material, physical and emotional. However, neither the quest for wealth nor desires must ever become an obsession and dominate life to the point of A, abandoning dharma, 
and b forgetting that one must progressively sublimate desires and attachment this is the way to make sure that the journey to god gets accelerated i would not be surprised if all this leaves you a bit dazed i'm sorry i have had to pack in a lot of material in this talk so maybe i'll go over all that once more what do you say i began if you remember with some remarks on what exactly the adherence to dharma means explicitly for men and women separately in doing so i was not seeking to open up the gender issue instead i carefully mentioned that swami's specific advice to women would hopefully be dealt with separately in another series sticking to a more broad perspective i then pointed out that in creation the divine aspect manifests as two apparently distinct and complementary aspects namely divine consciousness and divine energy i added that traditionally divine consciousness is identified with shiva while divine energy is associated with parvati drawing attention next to the folklore about parvati and shiva i explained that young people were not expected to rush into marriage driven purely by physical instincts instead adolescents were expected to focus intensely on the mastery of the scriptures and meditate with total concentration on brahman scriptural studies completed the young man then takes leave of the guru and with his blessings enters family life it taking on a bride for her part the bride to prepares for married life through the observance of a series of austerities all intended to help her navigate life with her partner always adhering strictly to dharma this then led me to make a brief reference to the four stages in a man's life it starts with brahmacharya where the man observes strict celibacy and focuses entirely on god emerging from adolescence with the rigid discipline of a celibate life and a good grounding in the scriptures as well the young man now enters married life the woman he takes as his life partner is for her part mature herself focus largely on helping her mate adhere to dharma in every possible way it is important to stress the joint partnership of man and woman in the practical observance of duties especially where rituals are concerned where important matters are concerned the code that was laid down made it very clear that man could not unilaterally take certain important decisions his wife had to be involved there is the famous story of how king arishchandra trapped into a difficult situation by sage vishwamitra as a spiritual test demands that arishchandra give away his entire kingdom while the king a man of his word prepares to do so the sage reminds the king that his wife is not present and that without the consent of his wife harishchandra has no authority to unilaterally give away his kingdom thus where the scriptures and the codes for life were concerned they were specific and balanced suited of course to the needs of those times what i am trying to drive at is that at least in those days there was no gender bias if bias crept in later it was entirely due to system atrophy people who complain about ancient tradition would do well to realize that any social or political system can atrophy if the basic rules are not observed in practice thus 
though a country may be a democracy on paper in practice it may be money power in unholy collusion with other shady agencies that actually rules by proxy so here is a case of atrophy if you think about it you would realize how vital the practice of dharma is for all people everywhere and at all times today there are complaints about human right violations all over the place and in so many different ways and these violations take place in practically all countries why is that so because almost everywhere people have stopped bothering about dharma that is why or take trade and commerce for that matter both are built on some basic assumptions there are people who produce commodities for example there are people who act as distributors either on a local or even global scale and finally there are the consumers at the other end for centuries this delicately built chain operated reasonably well on the basis of certain well understood principles based on honesty trust and integrity yes people on the supply side did make profit but they did not gouge everything was within limits thus the so called market forces that pundits talk about implicitly worked within the framework of what i described as the purushartas today the situation has changed drastically excessive greed has suddenly taken over like an epidemic and is causing huge disruptions all over the place just to make my point let me mention that the other day i was listening to a scholarly discussion over my radio on the price of crude oil in the international market i do not know what exactly the price would be at the time this talk is actually broadcast over radio sai right now as i am preparing this manuscript it is hovering around 135 dollars per barrel if you think about it the price of crude has jumped about 5 times in about 10 years 5 times in 10 years imagine that pandits have been analyzing this phenomenon intensely they all agree on the following if only supply and demand considerations were taken into account the price of oil today ought not to be 135 dollars per barrel but about 85 or 90 at the most the extra dollars have got into the picture on account of speculators that is people who are literally gambling and betting on the price of oil this gambling element has entered only recently and has completely skewed the entire pricing systems in practical terms the limits of dharma that used to be earlier observed though at times in a somewhat elastic manner have now been completely thrown to the winds in fact now there are no rules at all and anything goes if you think about the state of affairs in today's society be it in the education sector or the health sector or whatever everywhere you find that all of a sudden greed has infected people everyone both the rich and the poor like a massive epidemic why because basically people have suddenly for all sorts of reasons of their own started putting dharma on the back burner that is why the issue of strict adherence to dharma has become an urgent issue 
I would like to take this opportunity to request each and every one of your dear listeners to take some time off, reflect deeply on the matter, and if you feel like it, please do write to us about what you feel. Let me move on and join the mainstream, by which I mean going back to actual quotes from Swami's book on Dharmavaini. Here is my next quote, and please listen to it very carefully. Swami says, quote, The responsibility of the elders and the parents is very great in this. Take the students of today. No trace of culture can be seen in them. Matters of the spirit and talk of the Atma raise laughter among them. A majesty of words, a servitude to tailoring, these have become the fashion. This is not genuine culture. End of quote. I hope you paid careful attention to it, particularly the part about elders and parents not discharging their duties properly. The point Swami is making is really very simple. We all want dharma in society because it's like a grand insurance. I mean, who would like to live in a highly corrupt society where one has to bribe one's way from morning to evening? And yet, if one looks at the reports published by some international survey organizations, corruption has penetrated very deeply into almost all societies, in fact quite heavily in an alarmingly large number of them. Actually, some societies have even crumbled, and such countries are now referred to as failed states. In these failed states, there is no formal law and order, nor is there any formal educational, police, banking or postal system. Everything runs, if at all, in a highly messy and informal way. It's too frightening to think about. Most often, it is mob power that rules. I do not want to go into those gory details, but would instead like to ask, whose job is it to sustain dharma in a society? In days when Purushatas acted as the moral compass for society, this question never came up. Why? Because each person quietly and either knowingly or unknowingly observed the basic rules, as a result of which all was fine in the entire society. But when everyone abandons rules, throwing it to the winds, when everyone says it's not my job, when not even parents and teachers do anything to sustain dharma and teach the children, what else can one expect other than the mess we find ourselves in? It's simple really. If on a highway all drivers respect road rules, traffic flows fast and smoothly. But if everyone flouts the rules, soon there are not only traffic jams, but accidents as well. Next time I shall say more on all this. Meanwhile, I do hope you are able to cope up with this heavy dose. Heavy it might seem, but vital it is, far more vital than we realize. I shall deal with that in my next talk, but meanwhile, please write back with your comments and questions, and if you have brickbats, we welcome that also. Thank you for listening. God bless. Jai Sairam.